according to the Buddhist words, the ordinary worldling is beset with ten fetters, ten things which bind us to the round of birth and death, which bind us to the ordinary human problems and they are of course based on, uh, on the misconceptions which I've already explained but here again he puts them in the context of ten separate states of mind which gradually disappear only disappear completely every time there is a renewed experience of complete liberation. Now there are four stages, and I've mentioned them already, stream entry, once-returner, non-returner, arahant. And of course we are particularly concerned with stream entry. One of the great meditation teachers in Thailand used to say when he was still alive that we have wasted the whole of our human existence if we didn't get at least to stream entry. That's the purpose of human existence. Well, let's put in the context of not only the Buddhist terminology but the Buddhist teaching and of course in the context of making that pathway one's priority. So we are mostly concerned with that one and then the other three are sort of a follow-on which I'll briefly explain. Now with these ten fetters that bind us, that are like chains around us, the interesting aspect is that we only lose three at stream entry. And these three although they are extremely significant and of course change our outlook completely I would say they don't change our character yet because we are so hidebound in our habits that it's very difficult to change our character we can try and try again and every effort we make is good karma but it is the insight which really makes a change now I've already explained what happens to get to that point or oh, I explained it as best I could now then the getting to the point the past moment followed by the fruit moment and the fruit moment is the recognition of the experience in other words it's the understood experience and that recognizing brings with it also the removal of the first three fetters out of these ten and they are the wrong view of self the belief in rites and rituals and skeptical doubt now, 
Maybe we'll start with the belief in rites and rituals, although that's not the first one, but it's probably the easiest to uh, get a hold of and grasp. It doesn't necessarily mean that one never will perform a rite or a ritual, but it means that one will never believe again, if one ever has, that any right or ritual could bring about purification could bring about the goal of the practice the insight that it could bring anything with it which has as its foundation that for which one practices now it can bring It can be an outer manifestation on the spiritual path of a devotional attitude. It can be an outer manifestation of a certain togetherness to a celebration, to use Anya's words from yesterday. It can be all that, but it can never be again if it ever has been as a belief in the effect that it could have on the psyche so the effect it can have on the psyche which is the aim to have the stream entry would never be used again if it ever has but we can use it for the reasons I've already uh, said outer manifestation of a devotional attitude the uh, a celebration attitude also something that uh, arouses some interest because people are often interested in symbols in symbolics very often that arouses interest all that it can do now rites and rituals have been part of human the human um, endeavors from the time that there are any records the aborigines of Australia who have been around much longer than we have here have had and maybe still have a few rites and rituals all primitive societies have used rites and rituals in fact in a primitive society rite and ritual has always been very important and has always been the passage a passage of human um, lifespan rites and rituals for becoming adult at a certain time of marriage, of childbirth, of death, and we have them today. We have in our society, which we do not consider primitive, we have rites and rituals for the same things. We have marriage rights, and we have death rights, and we have rights for many occasions. Many societies have rights at um, reaching young adulthood and in different societies at different stages 
in more uh, primitive societies at a much earlier stage as than as in um, more sophisticated societies. It seems to take us much longer to grow up if we ever do. So all this is part and parcel of human history and of human behavior. And we can even see it in animal behavior, particularly here in Australia, when you watch the lyrebird, he has certain rituals that he performs over and over again, and a bowerbird. So it is not only a, a human behavior, it's also animal behavior. So rituals are part of our heritage. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with them. That's not what is meant here, that there's something wrong with them. What's wrong with them is to believe in their effectiveness. Now, if we were to believe, but I don't think anybody does anymore, that the marriage right will ensure that the marriage is going to last, that's about where it's at. Nobody believes it anymore. I think maybe in the past one has almost believed it. But it's impossible to believe that now. The same goes for the religious rites and rituals. If anybody believes that any of them will make spirituality happen, will make insight arise, then that is about comparable to that, believing that the marriage rights going to ensure the marriage to last. That doesn't mean one can't have the marriage rights. On the contrary, it's very nice. It uh, arouses interest. It's a togetherness. It's a celebration. It's um, symbolic. It has all of those factors. There's no reason to abolish it. It's exactly the same in spiritual or religious rights and rituals. Now, needless to say, I suppose, that this particular fetter is widespread in all religions, not just in the Buddhist path, on various, in various different traditions. In all religions, we have this widespread belief that certain things have to be done in order to make the religious or the spiritual endeavor come true. Well, it's a, one of the first three fetters that goes. Why? Because one has the personal experience of the moment, of the past moment, and it has nothing to do with rites or rituals. Absolutely nothing. In fact, that would be the last thing one would have in mind. The only thing it has something to do with is what I explained already, letting go of oneself completely and utterly. And since one has experienced it, there's no way one could ever believe otherwise. It's again the same thing. The taste of the mango, having bitten into it, becomes obvious. So... This is uh, one particular um, difficulty which no longer exists in the mind. And because of that, it also follows quite often, and we can see that in various parts or in various uh, instances, I should say, 
that people who have gained a great deal of insight use less and less ritual. Doesn't mean that they lose, lose, uh, use none, but certainly less. It isn't t- taking so much uh, important, hasn't got so much importance anymore as it may have had maybe earlier in their in their religious life. The moment that is the moment of stream entry is so far removed from any religion and so far removed from any ritual or any rite and so far removed from anything that has any connection with that that one couldn't possibly ever again believe that there's any results from that. But again, there need not be any dislike of them, and there wouldn't be. It's just um, a feeling that they have a certain place at certain times. Now, there's the other thing that is totally removed, and finally now totally removed, is skeptical doubt. Now, if you remember, skeptical doubts are fifth hindrance. Maybe you remember that. And it is a hindrance because it makes one unsure whether what one is doing is right, whether what the teacher says has any significance, whether one shouldn't go somewhere else where it's a little easier, whether the Buddha really was enlightened, whether dozens of things whether will everyone itself is ever able to do it, whether it wouldn't be better to do what everybody else is doing, one only lives once, and all the rest of those skeptical doubts which arise. And I think I may have mentioned already, I don't know, but I did, but when one has skeptical doubt, one's usual way of questioning is yes but so if you if one finds oneself saying yes but can be quite sure that skeptical doubt talking now skeptical doubt is only removed at the point of gaining the fruit of this past moment and why is that because one has proven oneself that what the buddha said is absolutely correct There is no way of being totally at peace and at ease as long as there isn't a diminishing of this self-illusion and at the moment of the past a total loss of the self-illusion and therefore a complete reduction and a complete loss of the oppression that a human life contains Constantly, But since we're all so used to it, we don't notice it. It always reminds me of the book, The Ugly American. I found that most interesting. He, this ugly American was a, a peace corps worker or something like that. Anyway, he got to a village, and in that village, all the older women had completely bent backs they all went around like this 
And he was wondering why. Why were they all like this? Why did they have all this? And it was it looked quite as if they were in pain also. And he finally recognized the fact that they were using brooms with such short handles so that all their life they had to bend themselves down to um, sweep. And by the time they got to be about 50, their backs were bent. Why didn't they make long handles? Well, they were used to it. Very simple. The same with us. We're used to all this mess and misery. So we don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> he made long handles for them. <laughs> and they liked it. So our, our skeptical doubt vanishes at this time because we have actually done it. We've proven the Buddha correct. Now we have no more doubt that we can do it at all because we've done it. And we have no more doubt that the Buddha knew exactly what he was talking about because we, we have proven it. And we have no doubt, we couldn't possibly have any doubt anymore, that this is the right thing to do because it's the only thing that was ever done by us that had a complete result. So skeptical doubt is completely eliminated and what arises is self-confidence, utter and complete. Now we can, of course, on the way there already gain some self-confidence. Second jhana, with the um, inner joy, without um, outer uh, conditions, already produces a lot of self-confidence. Let's say enough for the practice. But here, the self-confidence is complete. And that has the result of an inner authority. The self-confidence is not just um, a feeling of being all right. That being all right is okay to feel like that. But the inner authority is far more important. The inner authority is something that can't be shaken. Anybody can say what they like against this particular experience or concerning anything which has as its root a, a doubt or an argument about the experience or the past. The inner authority is so strong that one doesn't necessarily have to argue about it, but it's unshakable because the experience is there. And that unshakability is the reason why stream entry is, one could call, the safe spot. One can't go back anymore. No backward sliding. Anything we do on this path until there, we can backslide. Stop practicing. Very easy. What's easier than to stop practicing? Nothing. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And then things go backward. Our moral conduct may go to bits. Our, not only our practice of meditation, but even mindfulness will fall apart. And so we can have the f few insights one may have had may remain in the background of the mind and will remain, not may, will remain. But if we don't resurrect them to the foreground of the mind, they don't do us any good either. 
But at this point of stream entry, it's a safe spot, no backsliding. And what happens there are many things. One is that a stream enterer can no longer break the five precepts. It's not that he doesn't want to. Most people don't want to break them. But because of the effect on the psyche of this particular moment, the five precepts cannot be broken because there's no will anymore to do that. There's nothing there that is tempting to break them. Also, it is said that the maximum one has to come back to this um, human existence with all its joys and sorrows is seven times. But one can, of course, go the whole way in this lifetime. It is uh, said that in the Buddha's time, people often uh, attain stream entry all the way to Aranship and one sit or we're listening to one discourse. That was because the Buddha was present. And no backsliding and so far that nothing below human existence is ever possible again in those seven lifetimes that one has but these are statements made by the Buddha for which we have no personal guarantee or experience because we don't know what's going to happen next lifetime but it's this inner authority which is like a rock which gives that credibility that inner authority is also convincing it's not just convinced it's convincing and although the Buddha shunned um, mission, missionary activity he and his other arahants were so convincing that people converted converted no, became Buddhists by the hundreds, by the thousands because of that inner authority now inner authority has nothing to do with outer authority and is very often confused in our day and age <coughs> people are very much afraid of authority Australia is a prime example of that it's, uh, some countries don't have so much uh, people don't have that much fear of it but outer authority can of course be dangerous because it can result in dictatorship but that is an authority which is so to say abandoned by the people and given to somebody this inner authority is not given to somebody it arises that's a totally different matter so <clears throat> this is something of course that the Buddha and the other Arahants had to a great extent and so in his time many many people became Buddhists although skeptical doubt already becomes lessened when we become concentrated it still is not eliminated until this point 
because the lessening of skeptical doubt is due to the fact that we finally gain some confidence in our practice, but we can still doubt whether this is actually what we want to do, whether we want to go to the end of it. Here, nothing remains, no doubt remains. This is all one wants to do. So not only is there strength of conviction, but there's also this utter strength of one-pointedness in one's direction. Nothing else can be as interesting anymore. Things are interesting, but very mildly so. And if there's any choice to be had whether one should do this or that, the choice will automatically go towards practice. Anything that has to do with practice. Now, the most significant uh, of the three fetters, which we lose, is the wrong view of self. Never again can a stream enterer think of him or herself as a personal entity or an individual. That's never again possible. However, because it is only the first step into this new understanding, it does not, it's not a feeling within which remains. It's an intellectual understanding and a knowledge based on the experience. And the feeling will only arise every time the person resurrects the fruit moment, namely the moment of understanding what happened. Otherwise, that feeling goes, and the person again feels just like everybody else. This is me sitting here. But knows very well that this is not true. So whenever the attention is put on this particular aspect of knowing, immediately such a person knows there's only a process sitting there. But when not putting the attention on it, it reverts back to the usual way of thinking that when one gets up in the morning, that's me getting up. And when I'm doing making a mistake, that's me making a mistake and so forth. That's why it's necessary to have that experience four times so that it imbues the psyche with such impact that it can never even feel the old way again. In this first one, it's only the knowing, the understanding, and the feeling disappears over and over again. Now, a person who has had this experience, and by the way, this holds true for any good experience, needs to resurrect the feeling which came, which is a fruit moment, the feeling that came after the past moment, as often as possible, because that will then be the springboard for doing it a second time. Now, this holds true for any insight that one may have gained, and I've said that already, but I will repeat it. Any insight that may have come to one during this course or at any other time, bring it up over and over again. Look at it. Because as you look at the insight and actually see it for what it is, a different way of looking at the same thing, it will expand. 
and it will make the next insight possible. Don't, never should we rest on our laurels. Even the Arahant didn't do that, the Buddha. After his enlightenment, for 45 years, he taught others, just like ourselves, every single day of his life. Whether the weather or his physical condition were pleasant or not, he taught every single day. Sometimes one person, sometimes hundreds, whoever was there and wanted to know. He didn't go uninvited and he often uh, just answered questions, but even an Arahant, a Buddha, doesn't rest on his laurels. He passes it on. There are such that don't. They're for Cheka Buddhas. And that word means that they do not have teaching ability. They're fully enlightened, but they don't have teaching ability. So their contribution then is only the enlightenment factor which exists around in them and therefore around them. But the Buddha certainly urged his monks and nuns to go out and spread the, spread the Dhamma to those who wanted to hear. Now, we should never rest on our laws if we have had an insight. It's going to go to the back of the mind like a language we have learned and are not using. It goes to the back of the mind and it's difficult to find it again. I learned seven years of French in school. I find it very hard to say a proper sentence these days because I haven't used it. One has to resurrect that, which one can, of course, and practice it over and over again so that it becomes part of one's being. Just like a language, the same as insight. Practicing that insight means that one acts accordingly. If one has seen something which one has seen to be true, one has to make it come true. Just like we have to practice a language in order to speak it, we have to actually act according to the insight in order to have it as part of ourselves. That holds true for the fruit moment, that holds true for any insight we may have gained. Now the loss of the wrong view of self is the most significant aspect of this stream entry because it changes one's attitude towards oneself and the world every time one thinks about it. When one forgets to think about it, nothing has changed. However, the impact on the psyche is strong enough so that the mind does remember to put its attention on this insight. Now because the impact is not strong enough to make that feeling of non-self permanent, the next step on the path is necessary. Now you may have noticed or not that the first moment of Nibbana 
has not addressed greed or hate at all. So it is a very significant understanding that even a person who has seen Nibbana for him or herself has the same greed and hate as before. What to say about people who don't even know that Nibbana exists, never mind on any practice towards it. The greed and hate which exists in a free mantra is, however, fully recognized. And that's the difference. An ordinary person doesn't even know they've got greed and hate most of the time. But when the stream enterer has it, and he or she has it, at least he or she knows it. And that, of course, makes it possible to work towards the second step, the once returner, which means that such a person comes back here once and then makes an end of it. We can't force any of that. It's like an apple ripening on a tree. We have to water the tree, we have to fertilize it, we have to protect it from wind and storm, but we can't stand under the tree and say to the tree, please dear tree, I would like the apple ripe now. It doesn't work. It takes time. And we can also not say to the tree, would you please not ripen the apple? Keep it there. I want everybody to have the enjoyment of that apple. When the apple is ripe, it falls off the tree. And that's exactly what happens with the person who has matured to that insight. When it's ripe, that's what happens. All we can do is water and fertilize and protect. And that's a practice. But we cannot force it, nor can we retard it. Quite obvious, isn't it? We are maturing according to laws of nature. We are actually a typical example of the laws of nature. That we don't know it and don't pay any attention to it and don't like it, that's a different story. But we are. And that we don't like this is only due to our in, inbred foolishness, that's all. There's nothing to dislike about it. Because the laws of nature just happen. And if we flow with them, there's nothing that could possibly be to our detriment. So by resurrecting the, and the uh, feeling of the fruit moment, and continuing one's practice diligently, for which there would be no trouble, no difficulty, the second path moment will eventually arise. Whether it will arise in the same life, in the same week, on the same day, on the deathbed, who knows, when the person is ripe for it. The once returner has now a very significant happening, he reduces hate and greed. He reduces. He doesn't eliminate them. Because now that person has done exactly the same thing again, swung across this river 
to the other shore, letting go of the selfhood and the materiality again, and landed a little further in on that other shore, hate and greed is now reduced. And it is reduced to the point which for that person is significant. The person, him or herself, feels it. That things that used to be a great um, cause for upset, anxiety, are no longer even felt. We can look at it like this, a four-year university course. We have an exam at the end of each year. It's always the same major that we're getting examined in, but the examination become a little more difficult every time. And if we pass them, we have a little more depth of understanding of our topic, of our the um, course that we're taking. It's the same here. Four times we have to do this. And every time we do it, there's more depth to it. It's the same topic. It's always letting go of self. It never changes. But there's more depth to it. And in the end, we can get the degree and don't have to go back. That's then no longer any need to get exams. So this time we haven't removed any fetters. So we have done seen Nibbana twice. We've had the most significant change of the psyche and out of ten fetters we've lost three. Difficult undertaking, isn't it? So then one has to do it again. Now the first two steps, just like the first two years of university, are comparatively easy. If one has any kind of will and determination and any kind of proper guidance and perseverance, patience, there's no reason why one can't get there. A third one is difficult, more difficult. It's a non-returner. Now the non-returner never comes back to this sphere, to the human sphere. He or she has to finish the business in the higher realms, in the realms of consciousness where the mind is so subtle and fine that there's no discernible body attached to it. Having had that same experience a third time, the fruit moment is far wider reaching because of the extension of also the impact of the past moment. Although the impact is not felt, of course, because the difference between a jhanic state and a past moment is that in all jhanas there is an observer present, even though in fourth and eighth jhana the observer becomes so remote and so subtle that one doesn't think there is one. But it is there. It's only in the past moment that the observer and the observed become one.
In other words, there's nobody there to observe anything because it's a moment of totally letting go of self. So there's nobody there to observe it. So the past moment is not a moment where we would know the impact. It's a fruit moment when we know it. Fruit moment means the next moment where we recognize the fact what has happened. We don't know how to uh, describe it exactly because the observer wasn't there so we don't know the depths and strengths of the impact but we know the result and the fruit moment is a result moment so at that moment we know the result that here is now a rather different feeling about oneself because the non-returner is the first time where the person retains the feeling that there's nobody in there. Even the once-returner still has partially the, only partially the feeling of the non-self and has to resurrect the understanding over and over again. With the non-returner, that partial feeling is greatly enhanced. It only becomes perfect for the Arahant, but the non-returner has practically, let's say maybe 80% of the time, the feeling of nobody there and doesn't have to deliberately remember it. Around has it, for, has it 100%. Now, even the non-returner, which has such a widening of the experience, such a um, much greater impact, has still five fetters left out of ten. What happens this time is that greed and hate are eliminated. The greed for getting things and the hate for getting rid of things is gone. So such a person, of course, lives quite nicely and peacefully. But he still has five fetters. And still having five fetters out of ten is quite remarkable after having done so much already. Now what is, has been removed are the five lower fetters and now what remains are called the five higher fetters because they are only removed with the next step, Arahant. Now that of course is the most difficult, there's no question about that, that that's the most difficult thing to do even for the non-return. Because the fetters which remain are based on the fact that a very small or very subtle rem remainder of the ego illusion is there. It's compared to the uh, scent that a flower has. Now the flower and its scent can hardly be separated. And so this is the way it is for the non-returner. There is this scent around that person within that still has that very fine ego illusion. That's why the feeling of the non-self is only about 80%. Now due to that, there is still what is called ignorance because ignorance in Buddhist terminology means just that the ignorance of the complete lack of self and there is still restlessness 
because there isn't total and complete satisfaction. Can you imagine how restless the rest of the world is if the non-returner still has restlessness? The rest of the world can never be satisfied with anything. And this restlessness that we all carry within, unless we have become arahant, is something that we are again so used to, we don't even know we've got it. It's our constant mode of being. Nobody is completely at ease, at peace, totally satisfied. Just very momentary. And then it's all gone again. So with that restlessness and that ignorance comes what is called mano, which is conceit. Now that doesn't mean that the non-return is a specifically conceited person. One shouldn't hope so. But it means a conceiving. There are still concepts in the mind. It hasn't come to the fruition of only the bare knowing. There is still conceptualizing, conceiving, and therefore the word mano is translated as conceit, which is an un- unlucky translation because the word conceit we use in a totally different way. We use conceit as somebody who's got a superiority complex. Well, the non-returner certainly doesn't have that. So I would uh, think that the translation of mano would be more uh, practical to say conceiving or conceptualizing because there is still that little bit of self there's conceptualizing and that brings with it now we have ignorance restlessness and conceiving now that brings with it two desires and strangely enough it's not mentioned as a desire for total liberation. One would think that that would be there, but that isn't there, because the whole thing is so subtle that it is uh, said that non-returners very often uh, leave this human life as non-returners and do have to finish this um, practice in the higher realms, because the desire which is there is a desire for rebirth in the either fine material or non-material form which we could translate as hoping to be reborn in paradise or as an angel or whichever language we like to use in the Buddhist terminology it is the desire for rebirth in the fine material or non-material forms and the vehicle to get there are the jhanas, the fine material or the non-material jhanas. They are, so to say, the transport system. And they transport one there. And if the desire for that is in the mind, that's exactly what we're going to get. We have to make actually sure that we understand that's where we put our mind, that's what we'll get. And we should be very careful where we put our mind because it's usually in all aspects that what happens in the most worldly aspect as in those that are super mundane. Now this is what happens to the non-returner and since it is a fairly complicated procedure which takes years 
it's very often the fact that very highly realized people are already quite old and so then the energy is fading and they do leave the human life as non-returners. These are generalities which do not necessarily have to hold true, but it is not uncommon. And this desire in the mind, we can deny. I mean, even a person who hasn't got even stream entry can say, well, I don't want to be reborn in, a, in paradise. I don't even believe there is such a thing, or whatever. Which is the same denial as I'm not afraid of my own death. These are, these are concepts. Because of the fact that we don't have an actual experience of these things, we don't believe them. It is actually a very common and also in many religions denoted as the desirable goal that next life we don't have to come back to this veil of tears, but because we've behaved fairly decently, we're going to go and sit on, in a very nice place where everything is beautiful and where we're going to be rewarded for our good deeds. And this is a very um, ingrained and subtle um, belief system which one can find in oneself. It's also the disgust with what's happening here and then hoping that something better will happen somewhere else. Now this, of course, is due to the fact that there's still somebody there who would like to have it nicer than what he or she is having it now. When that has been completely given up, of course, there's no way that one wants to go back anywhere else because there's nobody there to go back anywhere, to go up or to go down or to wherever one wants to go. But in the non-returner, this is still there. And it is interesting to know this because this is a very um, advanced stage of development and of mind maturity to be a non-returner. It's also a stage where there are many um, uh, super mundane powers are available sometimes, not to everybody. And yet there's still this um, belief system and uh, desires in the mind. Well, the Arahant, of course, he loses the last five fetters, and that's the end of the story then, because there's nothing more to do. And uh, to know these fetters that bind us is not unimportant, because they too can be seen in oneself with mindfulness. And we may be able to see them, some of the ten, all of the ten, and we recognize their detrimental effect on us. And we can actually then, through that recognition, do something about them even without the benefit of their automatic release which arises through the path and fruit moment. So, now that is the end of that. Would you like to ask some questions? Yes. The stream entra when it comes back seven times is already a stream entra. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know how many times he has been a stream entra already? I mean, on, on which one of the seven yards? <laughs> 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 
It's of no, no, of no interest actually. The person who comes back as a stream enter doesn't particularly have to know he or she is a stream enter, but he has never lost the benefits of that particular realization and starts from there. It's like having been uh, granted entry into university and not losing that certificate. And always go there and then start working from there. But doesn't not necessarily know, uh, well, some people do know what happened in the past, but not necessary. But stream entry is a safe spot. Can't go back. Mm-hmm. I, I get to the first of the ten fetters, which is the rites and rituals. And whereas I can see they could obviously be a fetter if you still needed them by the time you were a stream entra, I could see that they're not necessarily a fetter where you might be at present. Because if you were using, for example, the flowers as the symbol and they were working, for example, a symbol of impermanence and they got your practice going towards impermanence or your sitting going towards impermanence or if you were using the Buddha Rupa to open your heart when you sat, if you were using it as a symbol of the Buddha and you were able to generate an opening womb, then the symbol is working and it's not better. No, I said that. They can be used for devotion for interest, for celebration. But they cannot be used to believe in their effectiveness to gain insight or to bring one to the um, past moment. Devotion is a a necessary um, help on the way and if the rituals are used for that purpose, that's fine. But the uh, stream mantra has a devotion anyway. He doesn't need it. That's true. What I'm thinking of is that there are lots of people who are not stream mantras, and they might think at this particular stage, okay, yeah, well, we can throw that out as well. And maybe at the moment they're very useful tools for them to be using. Uh, if, if the Rupa is able to open the heart and really. Um, be useful as a symbol for you at this particular stage of your progress, uh, then it's a very useful thing and not a Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely that a piece of metal or wood is going to open the heart unless you have the guidance how to go about it. But the thing is not that. The, the uh, point of the story is not that at all. The point of the story is this, that rites and rituals should never be used and will never be used by a stream enterer and should never be used for the or with the understanding that they will actually bring about that for which the practice is designed that they should not be used for they can be used for devotion they can be used for interest for celebration they are only a fetter if one believes that the marriage is going to work because there was a marriage right. If one believes that this path is going to work because one has been making rituals, then it's a fetter. But if the, the ritual is designed towards devotion, then it's not a fetter. It is useful 
and it can be very useful but it also doesn't become a devotional thing immediately it's very often um, just you know so, so something one does but when it is explained in that way it can become devotional yes and then it's helpful the fetter is only connected to the belief system this is going to do it just like with a marriage right and that the marriage couldn't possibly work when you haven't had the rights then it's a fetter you see the difference yes I, I don't think that uh, many people or westerners taken on Buddhism would actually think of the uh, wooden statue as going to be anything that's going to it's not the wooden statue there are plenty of rites and rituals going about not all of them Buddhist but particularly Buddhist which are said to be absolutely essential not the statue the statue is usually decoration I use it as an explanation for the um, uh, enlightenment uh, principle as a symbol of enlightenment principle most people don't even mention that but uh, rites and rituals in some of the Buddhist traditions are explained as absolutely essential steps on the path and not, have nothing to do with the statue so that is uh, obviously then it is a fetter but if it's explained as something that can help one to be devoted yeah okay that's fine that's fine but the statue is only a minor aspect of that and in many cases their statues can be beautiful so they have that aesthetic value also which also helps or can help not everybody but it can help but there's a um, rites and rituals are not confined to um, Buddhism nor are they confined to spirituality we've got stacks of them stacks of them in our lives and uh, there's no reason not to have them but if we believe that they are a guarantee of making it work then they're a fetter so it's um, that outlook and a stream enter can't possibly have that outlook but other people can yeah. also sometimes in lieu of something else if nothing else is working well maybe that works So what else have we got? Are the actual experiences of path and truth moments the same every time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the deliberation to get to the path moment has to be the same. Namely, the deliberate intent, I want to get rid of me. That has to be the same. That's always the same. The experience is basically exactly the same but it's stronger it's a stronger experience it uh, the strength lies it doesn't last any longer it's not any longer it's always very short but because one has had the experience before also one recognizes it more easily and knows it quite immediately for what it was and the strength of it seems to be more like a coming to a more familiar place 
And because of coming to this more familiar place than, than the first time, one feels at home there. And feeling at home there, it makes the mind, gives the mind a great deal of uh, comfort. And when you go home, you feel at ease, everything's fine, everything's all right. When you come to a strange place, you may actually feel a bit um, excited and there's no excitement at all anymore it's just the strength of it lies in the fact that you're coming to a familiar place which then you can spread out in and make yourself really at home in that so it's all the same exactly the same except there's no excitement in it it becomes very familiar and it has and you can spread yourself in it you have different people different experiences they can use different words even if they come from a different uh, uh, spiritual path it's all the same but you can use different words you can invoke Atman you can uh, invoke Allah you can invoke uh, the Godhead all different words it's all the same thing it's always the same experience the human mind is all one the whole thing is one, all the same. And uh, different explanations, but otherwise same. And if you read, and what, I, uh, that what I've done, um, particularly the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, Meister Eckhart, for instance, it's exactly the same thing. He calls it the Godhead, which is behind God. So it's not and he says quite rightly for which he was almost burned that God only exists because the creature exists now of course church can't handle that can't handle it to this day you know? so um, he was not actually I found out excommunicated so they don't have to reinstate him but they are um, they are uh, pretending he never said anything and that is also getting better because I heard actually I haven't heard it myself but somebody told me that the present Pope mentioned him once so um, that's a great advantage now really in advance but he says now behind God God only exists because a creature exists because creature thinks of God there's a God head and that's where you go and lose yourself completely what's the difference the same thing different words all one and the same the only difference here with Meister Eckhart who obviously was enlightened anyway in my mind it was obvious that he was enlightened um, he speaks from the enlightened standpoint and the masses loved it but it was, would, have, would have been difficult and was difficult to find a pathway he constantly admonishes them to let go of self and not have this uh, I uh, intent constantly but he doesn't say how to do it and this is a Buddhist genius he also says you know anatta non-self but he tells how to do it step by step by step and comes to the same conclusion same thing mm-hmm. the reason behind that little bit though I was that he was right in the midst of, of the burning as you were saying and it was only because he had very powerful protectors mm. that he wasn't burnt I mean they were trying to mm. Yes. 
really couldn't, in a way, didn't have the freedom to speak. I wasn't wasn't uh, 30 years. It, it it got worse and worse the more he got into it. And his uh, his sermons are well, not necessarily his, of course. Again, no tape recorders, nothing. But it is an Eckhardian tone in them. Um, his sermons are from an enlightened standpoint and from the church's standpoint totally controversial but uh, the step-by-step instruction which the Buddha gave are not to be found at all in fact it is and I think I'm not exaggerating extremely difficult to understand what he's saying it's extremely difficult to know exactly what is meant by it and I feel that the only way that is possible to understand what he means is by having practiced the Buddha's path and seeing that this is exactly the same thing what he's saying but he says it in a terminology which is quite different and a terminology which he hoped was acceptable to the church Um, and he again and again of course um, reiterated that he was a, a son of the church and had not, was uh, completely within the church and uh, well we're lucky that not every that this stuff is still around and Teresa de Villa didn't ha- had a very similar fate also but also she had some protectors so we still have her stuff too which is nice but Eckhart seems to be um, far more advanced than Teresa de Villa ever was it seems that he had a, an insight which went far beyond the um, um, understanding that Teresa de Villa had. Hers seemed to be um, the devotional experience, which is beautifully written by her in, in fantastic um, visionary um, experiences she had, which she can voice very poetically. But his seems to be a um, totally non-self-experience, what he, he talks about. And he calls it the Godhead. And I mean, there are any number of different explanations. Um, in Hinduism, Nisargadatta Maharaj expressed it in saying, I am that. I'm all. And Eckhart said, I'm God. And that's, of course, that drove the church wild, of course, <laughs> you know. But um, Nisargadatta Maharaj says the same thing, I am that, Tatvamasi. So again, in Hinduism that's acceptable. It's been, it's been said many times before, besides Hinduism is very tolerant, but which one could not possibly say of Christianity. So when he said, I am God, of course that was you know, too much, one step too far. But he explained it, that that what one has to go to is the Godhead. and. Um, in German he says it's the ungrund um, what's the English word for that I, I always call it the urgrund and he said the ungrund um, well that what I mentioned as possibly the um, primordial ocean so um, which is not a Buddhist terminology primordial ocean is not the Buddhist words but uh, I mean, everybody has come to the same thing so everybody has the same experience yes. 
no matter what religion or whatever they belong to, whether they belong to any religion. You don't have to belong to a religion if one goes along that path. The mind is always doing the same thing. And hopefully our minds are also going to do the same thing. Would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) Anything else? Yes? When you mention the four different stages on the Buddhist path, is it that's just the Theravada tradition? I thought I'd read somewhere that the Zen tradition, that some of the Buddhist traditions didn't designate four distinct stages. Yes, that's right. But I teach only one thing, and that's suffering and its end to reach, Theravada tradition. <laughs> I can't now make a comparison between Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Imagine that you have a fountain in your heart, a fountain of love. And the water of this fountain, as it keeps coming up and spreading, and as it has a beauty of appearance, all of that is filled with love. Every drop of water that comes out of that fountain is a drop of love. So let yourself be filled with that fountain of love from head to toe. Now imagine you're standing under this fountain and these drops of love cover you completely. Now let this fountain become powerful enough so that its drops of love can fall into the heart of the person nearest you. Let it be a beautiful fountain in movement and appearance, powerful so that the drops 
can go to your neighbor's heart. Now make that fountain so big that everyone who is here can stand under it. And all the drops of love that come out of this fountain are covering everyone. But the source of the fountain remains in your heart. Now let this fountain that comes out of your heart use its beautiful drops to fill your parents' hearts. they too can be part of the beauty and refreshment that comes from this fountain of love. And now let that fountain reach out to those who are nearest and dearest to you. Let them be filled and refreshed. Each drop containing love.
Now let all your good friends partake of this fountain of love that comes from your heart. Make it big enough so that they can all have the refreshment and the beauty of it. And now let the force of the fountain from your heart be strong enough so that all the people that are part of your life can be included to receive the drops of love that rain down on them. If there's anyone whom you don't like, don't love, take that person into your heart so that the fountain of love can refresh that person also. And now put so much love into that fountain that its spray becomes larger and larger and more encompassing. Give it more and more power so that it can reach far and wide. First the people that are near, then further and further, making that fountain bigger and bigger, more and more powerful, more and more love to give it energy, give it strength to reach ever further and let these drops of love fall down into the hearts of beings as far as the strengths 
of this fountain will reach. Now put your attention back on yourself. Let this fountain of love remain in your heart. To refresh and renew, to strengthen. And to continue the drops of love. which fill you and surround you, always available. Always a source of joy for yourself and others. Let the fountain remain. Be part of your heart. May all beings have love in their hearts.